Well, this morning we return to the book of Matthew, where we will begin uh, following the story of Jesus's death and crucifixion and resurrection. So I invite you to open up to page number 988 in the Pew Bibles. And this morning we're going to look at chapter 26 and then verses 1 through 16. Again, that's 988, chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come, and for most of us here, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is so familiar. And I ask, God, uh, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of our King willingly choosing a shameful death that he might bear the weight of our sins, that he might open the kingdom for sinners like us to come in through through his life, through his death, through his resurrection in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, toward the end of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph who Uh, sold his brothers into slavery in Egypt because they were jealous of their father's favoritism. Uh, But after being a slave and then a prisoner, Joseph rose to being second in command of all of Egypt. And eventually, because of a worldwide famine, his brothers and their father made their way to Egypt under the protection of Joseph. But when their father dies, Joseph's brothers are afraid of Joseph. They're concerned that he's going to take revenge on them for what they had done. And so this is what Joseph says to them. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As far as you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So they meant evil against Joseph. They meant it. They intended evil. And with their very same evil act, God meant it for good. So they did evil because they wanted to do evil, which means they're guilty of evil, but God meant, intended, dare we say planned, their evil for good. Just think about that. This is the doctrine of the providence of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism succinctly defines God's providence as his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, some object to this doctrine because they can't figure out how it's possible for God to govern the actions of free creatures and for those free creatures to still be fully responsible for their actions. But the truth is the Bible does not ask us to figure that out. The Bible simply teaches that we are free creatures who make free choices to do good or evil and that we're responsible for those choices. And at the very same time, God, who is holy, wise, powerful, and good, is governing those choices. We might mean them for evil, but God means them for good. And as we'll see this doctrine on display in our teaching from the Bible this morning, as we look at our passage, and we'll do so in four parts. First, the prediction, followed by the plot, followed by the perfume. And then finally, the plan set in motion. So first, the prediction. The book of Matthew is structured, uh, beginning with the narrative of Jesus's birth and his coming on the scene as a great healer and teacher, and then ending with the narrative of his death and resurrection. And in between, what Matthew does is he alternates between blocks of teaching and blocks of narrative. And then he goes back and forth between teaching and narrative. And our passage today marks the end of the last block of teaching and the beginning of the final narrative of Jesus's crucifixion. And every time Matthew ends a teaching section and resumes with a narrative section, he says something along the lines of what he does in verse one of chapter 26, where he says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And so this is our clue uh, that Jesus has done teaching. And Matthew is back telling us his story. And what's interesting about this last time Jesus says this is he inserts the word all as if to cue us into the fact that Jesus is now done teaching and everything from this point on will be directed toward the cross. And then he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. And at this point, we get a time stamp in the narrative. The Passover will be here in two days, which means Jesus is likely saying this on Tuesday evening. The Passover will begin at sunset on Thursday evening. 
And the Passover was the great yearly feast for the Jews uh, because it recalled the events of the Exodus where God saved Israel out of Egypt by sending plagues on the Egyptians until Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was willing to let the people go. So 400 years after Joseph's family moved to Egypt, they became a nation of slaves. And what finally made Pharaoh willing to let them go was the death of his firstborn son. The last plague in Egypt was the death of every firstborn. This included included every firstborn human as well as every firstborn animal. But if someone believed God, whether they were an Israelite or a Jew, if they feared God and they believed his words, and they took the blood of a spotless lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their home. When the angel of death was out killing every firstborn, he would pass over their home. And so the Passover was a yearly celebration to remember that those covered in the blood of the lamb would be safe from judgment. And not only that, but Passover was also a celebration reminding them that God freed them from slavery in Egypt because after the final plague, they were truly free to leave Egypt and begin their journey to the promised land. So Jesus intends to die on Passover as the true Passover lamb so that we could be covered in his blood and safe from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. Jesus also intended to die on Passover and give his life as a ransom for many to purchase us out of slavery to sin and death. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So whenever a company decides to build a new building, I've never been part of a company deciding to build a new building, but I imagine what they would do is they would hire an architect to draw the building for them. And then they hire somebody else to come along and make a model of that building. So we all get an idea of what this building looks like and get a feel for it before they go on to build it. And the Passover was a model. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost pictures the blood of Jesus covering our sin. The rescue from Egypt and freedom from slavery pictures our rescue from the power and the presence of sin, which is why it is so fitting that Jesus will be crucified on Passover. And Jesus tells them in two days, Passover is coming. And the son of man, who as we've seen many times through our tour through Matthew, is the glorious heavenly man from Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus is saying in two days, the glorious heavenly son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, before when he predicted his death, he said he would be killed or he said he'd be put to death. But now here, this last time that he predicts his death, he says that he is going to be crucified. Which means the Romans. Crucifixion is a uniquely Roman form of execution. Someone is going to hand him over to the Romans to be hung on a cross. And to be hung on a cross was a death reserved for scum and criminals. And to be hung on a cross or a tree was a cursed death, according to the law of Moses. 
This would have been the most shameful death, which is why you get the feeling that even though Jesus has already predicted his death before, the disciples are looking at him with just puzzled looks on their faces because how can this be? How can this great and powerful man who can calm storms, how can anyone deliver him up to such a shameful death? But Jesus wasn't telling them these things so they would be able to understand in the moment. He was telling them these things so when they looked back after his death and after his resurrection, they wouldn't see a man who was unexpectedly caught up in the crosswinds of political fighting between the Romans and the Jews. No, he was telling them this so that when they looked back after his death and resurrection, they would see a king, a king in complete control of every event leading to his death on the cross. And they would see God himself in the form of a man orchestrating his death, willingly laying down his life to fulfill the scriptures and prove his power and his wisdom and his authority and to save his people from their sins. So that's the prediction. And now we're gonna see how Jesus is gonna bring about his prediction. Uh, The tension between Jesus and the religious leaders has been going on throughout the entire book of Matthew. Uh, Back in chapter 12, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, we, is the first time we hear the Pharisees say that they're wanting him actually dead. But now not only is he a guy who heals on the Sabbath and claims to be able to forgive sins, uh, not only is he reinterpreting their understanding of the law of Moses, but he's in Jerusalem and he entered riding in on a donkey, symbolically claiming to be the savior of Israel. And then the next day he goes into the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers, saying that this temple is actually his house. And then after that, he goes out and he outsmarts the Pharisees in public in front of everybody. And then he warns them about the cost of their sin and unbelief by calling down a series of curses on them also in front of everyone. And all the crowds love him because he's a brilliant and powerful teacher and miracle worker, which means he could stir up a riot and force the Romans to turn the screws pretty hard if he wanted to. So because of all that, we're told. then. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priests, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, the word then here at the beginning of verse three is a kind of an ambiguous word. It can mean uh, afterward. It can mean meanwhile. Either way, what Matthew wants us to see here is that as Jesus is predicting his death, in one part of the city, around the same time at the home of the high priest, the Jewish religious leaders are putting Jesus's plan into action. Now, we don't usually point out all the differences between the religious leaders and the various names that they're given, but here it's noteworthy that this is not the Pharisees or the scribes. The Pharisees were lay leaders in Jerusalem known for their meticulous devotion to the law, The scribes were lawyers known for their knowledge of the law, Uh, but the chief priests, these are the people who control the temple. They control all of the religious enterprise in Jerusalem. And the elders, these are the aristocrats. They're the wealthy power brokers, the ruling class in Jerusalem. 
These are the people who are probably a little less worried about the fact Jesus is teaching something different than their understanding of the law of Moses and a lot more worried about the fact that the crowds love him and he has enough power and influence to start a riot if he wants. This is the group most committed to everything staying the same between the Jews and the Romans. So they gather in the palace of the high priest, which is also significant because like our church, the council does not meet at my house. Unless, unless of course, it's a secret late night meeting where not everyone is invited, which is what is happening here. And their plan is to arrest Jesus by stealth, which is a word that can also mean trickery or cunning and then kill him. But the problem is the crowds love him. So on one hand, he has the power to start an uproar because the crowds love him. But on the other hand, if they try to arrest him, that might cause the uproar they're trying to avoid. So their plan is to wait until after Passover when the crowds are gone and then they'll arrest Jesus. But the only problem then is who knows that Jesus would even still be around. So they're going to need a lot more things to go their way for this plan to work out, which of course we all know Judas will betray Jesus and hand him over to them. So what we have here is a group of men under the direction of their own free will, doing exactly what they want to do, fully responsible for their evil desires and actions. And all along, they're doing what Jesus intends for them to do as well. But they want Jesus arrested and killed secretly after Passover. Jesus intends to be arrested and killed publicly on Passover. And we all know who gets their way. This is how Peter is going to frame this in a sermon on the streets of Jerusalem almost two months later. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus' death on the cross happens because God planned it to happen. And God planned the chief priests and the elders to make a plot to kill him. Yet the guilt lies with the men of Israel. They crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Listen to how the disciples will later pray as the news of what Jesus has done spreads through the world. They pray this, for truly in this city, so they're still in Jerusalem praying this, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we have two things here that are both equally true. Everyone who participated in crucifying the son of God is guilty of killing Jesus. And at the same time, they were doing exactly what God decided for them to do. They meant it for evil and God meant it for good. So that's the prediction and the plot. And now we hear the story about the perfume. So before Matthew goes on to tell us about Judas 
uh, betraying Jesus, setting this whole plan into motion. Uh, he's going to tell us a story that actually happened on the Saturday night back, uh, the Saturday night before, back in Bethany, before Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And we know what happened on that Saturday night because when John tells this story, he's a lot more careful about uh, laying out the, the time sequence and the chronology. The other reason we know uh, is because Matthew uses the word then in verse three when telling us about the religious leaders plot. And then he uses the word then in verse 14 to tell us about uh, Judas's plan uh, to, um, to betray Jesus. But in verse six, he says this, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, It's almost as if Matthew is saying, remember back when Jesus was in Bethany uh, at Simon the leper's house? And Bethany is the home of Jesus's really close friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And then they're all over at Simon's house for a meal. And uh, he's probably not a leper anymore, given Jesus's propensity to heal people like that. But he must have been known in the early church as the leper as if to remind everyone who he was all on his own before Jesus came into his life. And at that meal, a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And we know from John that this woman is Mary, Martha and Lazarus's sister. We know the ointment is pure nard, which is a very expensive perfume imported from India. And we know from Mark that it costs 300 denarii for this bottle of ointment, uh, which would have been an entire year's wages. In our day, this would be like opening a $50,000 bottle of wine for your pastor. Please don't. So the disciples, if we're going to be charitable, we're probably feeling how I would feel if someone tried to open a $50,000 dollar bottle of wine for me. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So given the fact that Jesus is a religious leader who lived in poverty himself, traveling all around in constant dependence on the gifts of other people for food and shelter, this does seem quite a bit extravagant. But Jesus aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? So they must have been saying it out loud and trying to shame her. Jesus goes on and says, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now just picture it. Uh, We're at dinner and someone wants to honor me by opening a bottle of 1945 Chateau Mouton Rothschild, which according to Google is worth $47,000. But then someone says, wait a minute, wouldn't we honor Pastor Patrick so much more by selling this wine and giving the money to the Stockton Gospel Mission? And then I say, no, 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 please open it. I deserve it. If I said that, it would be the height of arrogance. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you're always going to have the poor with you to take care of, and you should take care of them. But even more important than that is giving me the honor I deserve before I go. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is doing here is he's placing himself rightfully 
and the place of God and the order of our duty and our affections. He's also letting us know the biggest problem the poor have is not their poverty and hunger. The biggest problem the poor have is they too are guilty sinners who stand condemned before a holy God. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And the poor, just like all of us, need Jesus honored above all, willing to go to the cross on their behalf infinitely more than they need food. And then Jesus now is going to return to the theme of God's providence. He goes on, And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So Jesus is about to die a criminal's death. Criminals, when they were buried, were never properly have their body, never had their bodies properly anointed because they were criminals and no one cared. So Jesus is planning to die on the cross, a criminal's death. And here we see him making sure he receives the anointing of a king. What a contrast between Mary and the chief priests and the elders and Judas. The chief priests, the elders and Judas are all plotting together to stop Jesus all the while doing exactly what Jesus is planning for them to do so he can die the shameful, cursed death of a criminal that we all deserve because of our sin in our place. And at the same time, here's Mary, the woman who just wants to sit at Jesus's feet and learn from him. The woman who was willing to waste potentially the most valuable thing she owns to show Jesus the glory and honor he deserves. And in so doing, she is also preparing Jesus to go to the cross. Here's what this means. Everyone in this story is doing what God had planned all along. Some for evil out of fear and envy and pride to their shame and judgment, but Mary out of love and devotion to her King, to her very great reward. Jesus goes on and says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. And so when the news of Jesus's life, death and resurrection spreads throughout the whole world, so does this story. For those who worship Christ alone, for those who find in him their greatest treasure and their greatest value, not only do we discover Jesus is worth giving up everything for, right? He's worth, if you, if you find a treasure in a field, sell everything you have and go and buy the field. But we discover there is great honor and reward for those who do. And to prove my point, let me ask you a simple question. What is your opinion of Mary? Every single one of us has an incredibly high opinion of Mary. And even though we have a high opinion of her, she does not share Jesus's glory. But because she loves Jesus above all else, she is taken up into his glory. Isn't that what you want, Christian? To be caught up in the glory of the only true God, to have him shine into your heart, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ every day. 
That's what I want. But for some inexplicable reason, that is not what Judas wanted as he goes to set this plan in motion. So now we conclude our text for this morning with one of the saddest few verses in the entire scripture. Matthew tells us, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, 30 pieces of silver was the price that you would give me if your ox killed my slave. So you have Mary pouring out an entire year's wages onto Jesus extravagantly, and then Judas going and selling him for the price of a slave. And if you're reading Matthew for the first time and you know nothing about the story, before this moment, Judas was just as anonymous as all the other disciples, not named Peter, James, and John. But now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one of the 12 decides to betray him. Why? And Matthew gives us no reason. Can you imagine getting to be with Jesus? Getting to experience the sinless son of God looking you in the eye and loving you and laughing with him, hearing him teach, watching him really, truly, deeply love every person he comes in contact with. Seeing him heal and cast out demons, watching him calm storms and outsmart everyone. And after all that, deciding to betray him. It's as unthinkable as angels leaving God's presence in heaven. And so if we're going to guess why Judas would do this, the best possible explanation I've found is that his last name, Iscariot, potentially associates him with the Zealots. And the Zealots were extreme nationalists. They were populists who wanted to free Israel from Roman occupation by force, if necessary. And so maybe Judas was trying to force Jesus into using his power to save himself and defeat the Romans. But at the end of the day, we have no idea why Judas betrayed Jesus because that's what sin and unbelief are like, right? Blind unbelief is sure to err, we just say. It's sure to err. It's sure to see things wrongly. And when we think about the goodness and the love of God, there is not a single sin that makes any sense. But no matter what Judas thought he was doing, he was doing what God intended him to do. He meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So loved ones, we have a choice. We can live this life to honor Christ, to give him our allegiance, our obedience and our worship, which he rightly deserves. 
which will lead to his glory and our reward. Or we can be indifferent or rebel. We can live life driven by our own fear and greed and pride. We can oppose Christ and who he is and what he's doing. And if we do that, it will still lead to God's glory. But to our judgment. In Ephesians, Paul says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything that happens in this life happens according to the will of God. Every evil thing that takes place happens because God ordained free people to do evil things out of their evil hearts for evil reasons. And even though they intend it for evil and deserve to be judged for it, God intends it for good. And the ultimate example of this truth is the cross where the most evil thing in history happens. Yet out of it, God saves sinners. And the question is never whether Jesus will receive all glory and honor. He will. The question is never whether every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. They will. The question is, will we accept Christ willingly? Will we see that this great and mighty King out of love for sinners has ordained a way that we might be right before him and then was willing to come and to suffer in our place to save us from our sins and to show us that if we really looked inside our own heart, we would discover that we are the greatest sinner we know. That right now he's inviting all of us, whether for the first time or again, to put down our sin, to let go of our agenda, to receive his grace and forgiveness, to pick up our cross and follow him, and then to fall down and worship and adoration. And that even after betraying and crucifying the son of God, the chief priests, the elders, and even Judas could have received forgiveness if only they would have humbled themselves and come to him. And I wonder if the reason Matthew knows what happened that night in Caiaphas' house is because one of these chief priests and elders did do just that. The other reason this doctrine is so important is that because of it, we can rest knowing that for those who love Jesus like Mary, everything that happens in this life happens for God's glory and our reward. Every regret, every sadness, every sorrow, every sickness. Whether God gives us comfort or cancer, he is the king working all things according to the counsel of his will so we can rest. There's three options in life. We're all like passengers in the back seat of a car. That's how much control we actually have in this life. And there's three options. Either someone's driving the car and they're evil, or no one's driving the car and it's just careening out of control and everything is chance and, and who knows why anything happens in this life. Or three, there is someone behind the wheel who is good and who loves you. 
And the doctrine of God's providence invites us to believe that number three is true. And then we simply fall down at his feet and worship him. We give him everything we have and everything we are. And then we respond to whatever he brings into our life, whether it's comfort or cancer, trusting that we have a savior who went before us and suffered the ultimate price in our place. And that anything we suffer is only adding to the reward. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we see the power of Jesus on display, orchestrating events that could only fall into place the way they did through divine providence, through you governing all free creatures and their actions. And Father, we pray that far from letting this doctrine give us fear of you, God, we pray that you by your spirit through your love and through your word would cause this doctrine to give us great peace. That only in you and through you can we rest knowing that you are working all things out for good for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose, God. And we know that purpose is to conform us to the image of your son, that we would be like him more and more in this life. And one day when we die, we will see him and become like him. God, that is our great hope both in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen.